Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. So taking this to like a church leader context, obviously that's sort of the general topic of the podcast and those that are listening. This is where it gets tricky because I would imagine if a family maybe has a a son or daughter who's experiencing some of these incongruencies that you've articulated, and maybe they've invited the bishop or a church leader into this experience to help them figure out prayerfully where to, you know, what direction to take. To me, it seems like there's just so many complexities, so many nuances of what is or isn't or how to determine if the individual is transgender and then putting that up against the revealed doctrines, you know, with the eternal nature of, of gender. I I mean, I, to me, it wouldn't feel crazy for a bishop to really encourage that family, say, hey, whatever you do, there's let's not do anything too permanent in these teenage years. Let's let the child grow up and develop until they can as a grown, mature adult, make these decisions for themselves. Is that like completely crazy from your perspective? Yes and no. Uh, (laughs) I mean, of course you don't want people to do something, some irreversible surgery or something, then regret it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what's the, I was looking at regret rates a while ago. You know what like the regret rate is for a breast augmentation among cisgender women? Uh, you go lot. and get a boob job and then regret it. It's like 30, 35% or something. Oh, wow. And those who get hip replacement, I mean, all these surgeries and even cosmetic surgeries have these really high regret rates and that. But, you know, people do them and most are happy with it. And to some extent, they're reversible, I guess. But yeah, when you're talking about things with transgender of what is involved there, and I'll spare the audience the details of it. They can Google and watch the YouTube videos of that. But it's, yeah, you don't want people doing that and then regretting it. But the problem is the overlap there, because that's when people who are transgender are going through their worst gender dysphoria, because it's when you've got the hormones and your body is changing. And the problem is, is your body is changing in ways you don't want. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is then a lot of those changes you're going through are also permanent and in a way irreversible. I'm six foot one and slightly broad shouldered. Mm -hmm. I can't change that. I mean, so, I mean, there are these surgeries that you can do to try and correct these things, but it's much easier to prevent them from happening. Mm -hmm. And those are happening during puberty, Mm -hmm. during those ages. And so, to be able to stop those and allow the body to not go through that natural maturation and be able to do a course correction towards the gender they identify with will give them a much better situation as an adult. Yeah. So the, what you're saying is, well, don't make this decision as a child. But at the same time, it's like, if you don't do it now, you can't, you're like, don't do something irreversible now but we want you to do something that's irreversible. We're going to force you to go through this irreversible thing of our choice without letting you go through, do something that's perhaps irreversible that you want Mm. because you might regret it. And so that's where it's tricky. Yeah. You you see the problem. You don't make that decision. Yeah. Cause 'cause from our standpoint, it's easy to 
walk in there for, uh, with a like, hey, let's not do anything irreversible. But from your standpoint, you're saying like, no, puberty is the irreversible thing, right? And so that's a helpful perspective to just understand, regardless of what I think or agree with or, you know, and, and it is tricky just because the society that we live, like you said, the social media world of like, it's almost promoting or encouraging this type of transition to those that even aren't truly the, uh, experiencing the transgender or the gender dysphoria. Right. And so I will say, really, you don't have to have any surgeries before age 18, boys or girls. It's all hormonal stuff that they're... They would so all the things about surgery out there, it's not as common as people are saying it is. Does it happen? Yes. Mm -hmm. But for trans girls, they aren't doing top surgery and they're... There's only been a few cases of bottom surgery before the age of 18. Mm. It doesn't happen, but usually if it does happen, it's happening at age 17. Yeah. Nobody is taking this 10-year-old or 8-year-old boy into a doctor and having bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. There's no way to do it at that age, and there's no reason to do it. And so, I mean, I suppose some crazy doctor could do it on a kid, uh, at a boy at 10 years old, but it's just... I've never heard of it happening. Yeah. And so you get a lot of stuff in the news of, oh my gosh, they're transitioning these kids at age eight and 10. And it's like, that doesn't mean they're having surgery at eight or 10. Mm -hmm. That just means they've gone into these gender clinics or seen a gender doctor for treatment. But a bottom surgery for a trans girl is 99.99% .99 of the time happening at age 18 or older. Yeah. And a few rare cases at 17. And for the trans boys, for those girls transitioning, they're not having bottom surgery of a hysterectomy either. But what is much more common is for them to have a double mastectomy sometimes at age 14 or 15. But the reality is they could put it off till they're 18 as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't think surgery has to happen before age 18 at all. And they can wait. That's not an issue. The problem, as you said, is hormones because the hormones is changing bodies in other ways. And so there's puberty blockers, which are used and it's very controversial. And a lot of things are being said about how dangerous they are and everything. But the interesting thing is the trans community didn't come up with puberty blockers. They were invented in, I think, 1983 and were used for precocious puberty. Pivot back to, to your story. So as when it came to, you know, you made it through those developmental years and then, I mean, it was pretty, it was, a, you felt the expectation to go on a mission and what was that experience of making that decision like? Oh, well, yeah, I was raised that I would always go on a mission like my father. Uh -huh. And I guess I was fine with that. The problem was when the rubber hit the road of when I turned 19, I got through junior high and high school. But in my senior year, I got a little rebellious and I started growing my hair out. Mm -hmm. And I started changing how I dressed. And I think a lot of people interpreted that as I w was on drugs mm -hmm. or some sort of rocker or hippie or something. And nobody thought girl. Uh, yeah. And so... For you, this was a way for, for you to begin to cope with this incongruency, right? This just, yeah. This dysphoria. So it was a way of medicating the gender dysphoria. 
And so when I grew my hair out past my shoulders and I looked in the mirror, I was like, oh, I see myself. I can actually start to see myself. This is who I am. I can see me. And that is a liberating experience right. of, to have that sort of confirmation. And also post uh, high school, I really became uh, suicidal. And so by the time I hit 19, um, the bishop called me in for, uh, call me on a mission and had, gave me the papers. I was like, sure. And I took them home and I started filling them out. Actually, it's even worse than that. I left his office and it was right before sacrament meeting. I think he pulled me in during our, in our ward sacrament meeting was the last meeting. Uh -huh. And so he pulled me in the middle there during Sunday school. And so when I walked out of his office, started sacrament meeting. And I think it was testimony meeting. And I got up there to the podium and I said, I got these papers here. I'm going on a mission. <laughs> and that was the last I was said about it because I, took them home and I started filling them out and I got to this section about mental health. And it said, how often do you think about suicide? You know, never, rarely, often or something. And I'm like, where's hourly? There's no hourly on oh, wow. this form here. Mm. And it was sort of like, if you do, then explain why. And I'm like, how do I explain that? And then the next question was something like, are there any other mental issues we should know about? And I'm like, Oh, that I'm a girl? Mm. And how do I explain that? And so I didn't know how to answer those questions, and I didn't have anybody I could talk to. So I just shoved the, the application in because I, I had this realization that there was no way. I mean, I knew what a missionary haircut looked like. And my mom, thankfully, never in my life gave me one of those. Mm. She always believed in the the more of the Disney ideal of boys with a little bit longer hair than yeah. the missionary thing. So, and going on a mission, you knew that. I mean, even everything from the white shirt and tie. I mean, that was the uniform. I mean, there's it's extremely masculine, right? Right. Every and part I've, of it. I've yeah. never owned a suit. Mm. Well, not one that came with pants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hated becoming a deacon and having to wear the shirt and tie. That was something I was not looking forward to as I was growing up. And I hated it while I was in the Aaronic Priesthood. I hated every Sunday putting on that dress shirt and tie and going to church. It was not me. And so realizing that at that point in my life, my long hair was my coping me mechanism. Mm -hmm. It was how I could express myself of being a girl outwardly to people and then maybe they didn't understand that they thought i was just some hippie but that was me being able to express that and be able to deal with the gender dysphoria it was my medication yeah and so going on a mission and having to and cutting my hair would be like going cold turkey and i didn't know what would happen and i wouldn't without any coping mechanism at all i just figured i'd kill myself wherever the lord sent me Mm. that I would be dead within a period of time. Yeah. So was there a decision point or did it just sort of fade away as if, let's just forget about this? Mission I just I just came to that realization that there was no way I could do it. Yeah. I mean, allow me to go in a dress and a skirt and I would have gone out and preached the Lord's gospel to everybody, <laughs> but I could not do it as male. Yeah. So and maybe this is another part, insert this topic that I think, I mean, many people think about it, but especially in a church leader 
perspective of, you know, suicide ideation. Obviously, that's a huge concern, and we I don't want anybody to feel suicidal. And so the feeling is is that some level of transition needs to happen, either socially or medically or whatnot, or this person's going to continue to struggle with suicide ideation, and we need to stop that at all costs. But I've also heard research, and correct me, you're much more read on this, that any even medical transition, you know, intense transition for transgender individuals, that the suicide ideation doesn't really change or is affected by that. What would you say? The research that I've seen shows that simply by using somebody's preferred pronouns and name cuts suicide ideation in half. Mm. Drops it from like 54% to 27, 28%. And being affirming can drop it even lower, even down below 10%, down to like 8%. And what do you mean by affirming? Because I think many people define that differently. That you treat them as uh, someone like me as female. Okay. So not just use my name, Catherine, which is my legal name now. And mm-hmm. yeah, and using that, it's great. So it's, it's really odd when I come across stuff with my dead name and of, oh yeah, that old person. Yeah. And when you say dead name, if people aren't familiar, that's what you're, the name you were given at birth. <laughs> yeah. The name my dad gave me at birth and blessed me with. He loves to remind me of that. It really, it really, yeah. Changing that really, really hurt my dad. Mm. And so, yeah, those sorts of things help with it. And a lot of the problem is, is that somebody comes out as transgender, they socially transition in that they're wearing the clothes and appearance of somebody of the gender they identify with. In my case, dressing female with wearing dresses and jewelry and makeup and that, as other women do, is very good to me. But when people go, oh, you're transgender and they start shunning you. And people are like, well, we don't want you working here. Mm-hmm. And transgender people lose their jobs mm-hmm. and landlords throw them out of their apartments or places they're renting and families shun them. And so when you come as transgender, you're, you're in this unique position of you are feeling great. You're finally, the dysphoria is probably largely gone. And you're feeling great, feeling better than you ever have in your life. But now everybody around you is treating you poorly. And you're getting this shunning, this ostracizing, and you get the loneliness because you lose friends, you lose family, you lose your job, you lose a place to live. And a lot of transgender people end up homeless. Your life really goes downhill like Job. You lose, a lot of transgender people lose everything. And when you've lost everything like that, suicide then becomes something you're looking at as as an escape from that. Yeah. And the thing is there is that I read stuff from the non-trans audience and stuff, and they're like, it's being transgender causing the suicidality. It can't be us. It can't be how we're treating them. It's Mm -hmm. not us. And I'm here to tell you, no, really, a lot of it is how you treat us. And there are people who treat us really well, and there's people who don't treat us really well. And when you lose family and you lose your church, if you don't feel accepted at church anymore, like you belong there, and you start wondering if God really accepts you anymore, I mean, your testimony really starts to get tested in these situations. And so it is a huge part of it. Yeah. There's some give and take there, right? I mean, 
because obviously nobody, I don't think any church leader wants to see anybody struggle with suicidality or be homeless or do those things. But it's, there is a point where maybe they can be overly submissive to every request. And they, I mean, there's a give and take there as, and, and that's why I want to really highlight these type of discussions that you got to at least sit down with these transgender individuals as a church leader and at least talk it through. Like what would be supportive for you? What are you looking for? Well, I, I can do this, but that request I can't really do. I mean, is that a fair dynamic that that's going to happen? Well, the question there at this point is what is allowed by the church and what what's personal and what's you know what what is the church mm-hmm. of yeah people have a lot as individuals have a lot of feelings and understanding of what transgender is and as i've found out you know a lot of people are like i don't want that transgender thing anywhere near me mm-hmm. that's wrong that's, yeah, that's sick right. and wrong and yeah. you're mentally confused you're sick you need help and I don't want you anywhere near my children. I don't even want you in my ward building. There are people, if you read my book, you know, it's it's yeah. this thing of, we don't even want you in the ward building at all. And we don't want you near our kids. We don't want you near our youth and all of that. And that's really hard. But there's, I mean, there's transphobia, there's bigotry in that. And I'm sure some church leaders have those feelings. I mean, by church leaders, I mean worldwide of from, you know, the lowest up and that. But they have those feelings. And it's a lot of that is because they've never met a transgender person. They've never had that conversation. They've never tried to understand what it is we're going through. They just know what they heard on talk radio or they saw on their Twitter feed or where they get their news. And not that a lot of that isn't true, but... I don't agree with a lot of that stuff too. And I don't like the circus that there is in going on with transgender. And I don't agree with a lot of it. That's not yeah. who I am. And so bringing those biases in, in as a church leader is something that they need to evaluate. Because if you look at the actual policy in the handbook, it's very accommodating of the policy that they released right before the pandemic starts. So maybe most people aren't even aware of it, but it came out in February, 2020 with the um, new online church general handbook. And it says in the first paragraph that being transgender is hard. They recognize it and they recognize that it's hard for families, but then they go on and they say, transgender people should be shown the utmost compassion and Christ-like love, and that we're allowed to go to meetings on Sunday, any meetings we want to. I've had Elder Christofferson tell me himself that according to church policy, I'm allowed to go to any meetings that I identify with. And so I'm allowed to go to Relief Society. And that's the policy of the church. But you have a lot of local leaders who are I don't want this trans woman in the Relief Society. Or there may be women in Relief Society who are like, I don't want this trans woman in there with me. And so bishops will then say, sorry, you can't go. And then you're faced with this feeling of, oh, I know what the five foolish virgins feel like. Mm. Of I'm stuck outside the door. I can't go into Relief Society. I'm outside the door and I can't go in. And so 
you feel, I don't belong. They don't care about me. And it's like, do they still care about you? Probably. But when you can't go in and be with the rest of the saints and they tell you, just go home, you don't belong here. That's really, really hard. Yeah. Of that feeling. And then you're like, I'm not a foolish virgin. I've got a testimony. I want to be in church. I want to worship. I want, I believe in uh, the prophets and Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, temples, all of it. I mean, I'm a card carrying Mormon, but it's like there was that interesting time in my life where I could go to the temple when after I transitioned, came out to my ward si- or a little over six years ago. I could go to the temple. But I couldn't go in Relief Society. That works on your brain a lot of like, I'm worthy to go to the temple, but I can't go into this Relief Society room. I mean, and the church talks about that, the complete opposite of that. Our ward buildings, anybody can come. Everybody can come to a ward building on Sunday. It's the temples where we draw a line of worthiness and who can enter in the temple. Those are our special places. For me, it was the complete opposite. And when you did attend the temple, you had to present or do the the male ex- experience, right? I tried really hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. So that's difficult. On uh, that's a whole other uh, you know discussion. I did get uh, yeah. I did several times get told in the men's locker room that I was in the wrong one. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so oh, no. I was like thinking to myself, yeah, I am, but I'm not going to let me go over there. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I probably might have been able to, but I wasn't going to risk it because I didn't want to have that conversation. I try to limit my awkward conversations with my priesthood leaders. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about this, you know, with the whole Relief Society, attending Relief Society dynamic, because like you said, you've gotten the, it's been communicated that you're free to attend anywhere, but then there's just so many opinions involved. And this is where it just becomes an impossible church leader experience because they're they're not going to please everyone. And I mean, church leader, they, they want to just make, you know, let's just be happy and pleased and get along here. Right. And so, I mean, what, what advice just from your personal experience would you give to a church leader who says, because I would find, you know, if I was your bishop, I would just be like, great. You know, if you want to attend Relief Society, let's have you go there. But I know there'd probably be 10 emails or phone calls of people. Hey, we don't want Catherine, you know, and then it's like, well, what do I do? So what, I mean, how do you begin to approach that situation from your life experience? That's a very good question. Because years ago, when I was in a bishopric, I read the church handbook. And it starts out saying, I think it's even in the current church handbook. It says, these are the policies of the church and is a place for you to read and to begin to get inspiration of what you should do. And when I read that like 15 years ago, I was like, that is amazing. Because inspiration is always a place in this church, a personal revelation, and especially to church leaders who have those mantles, which I probably safe to say I will never have in my life um, at this point. And so I, I respect that. And so what is the inspiration you're getting of what to do? I can't discount that. So it's hard to say what a bishop, in those cases of a bishop receiving revelation is going to be the best place of that. But I also know that a lot of times revelation can be, you know, based on our own uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. And so a bishop who feels like, yeah, she shouldn't go, maybe we'll get spiritual confirmation that she shouldn't go. 
I mean, so I would say as priesthood leaders, have a very open mind on this issue of recognize your own biases of what you think should happen and realize what is the policy of the church. If the policy of the church is that they can go, then what is your reason for not letting them go? Mm-hmm. And make sure that that is, is a real thing. Because I've been in relief societies and gone for several weeks and everything was great. But then I say something and they realize I'm transgender. And then the next week it's, you can't go anymore. Mm-hmm. We've now had some, you know, some women are uncomfortable having you there now because they know I'm transgender. They didn't know the weeks before. And I've had some priesthood leaders tell me, yeah, this, you can't go. The policy comes from the first presidency. And I'm like, I know it doesn't. It's not the policy of the church, but church leaders will tell me that. Yeah, judge in Israel, you have to balance things. And I feel it's a lot like being in, um, the, like the Zoramites in the Book of Mormon, when Alma went to them and found the Zoramites. And yeah, they were doing crazy stuff with the Ramiampton and stuff. But the problem also was that they'd kicked out a whole bunch of the saints because they were poor and they didn't dress well enough. And I liken myself to them in a lot of ways of feeling like the church is like, you're not good enough to be here. You're too poor. Your clothes are wrong. And we don't want you here because of that. And so I have to go worship someplace else. And that is hard. And the question there is like, the people in there in the Relief Society or wherever are uncomfortable with me. Okay, so the quickest and easiest solution is to then to make them comfortable is to remove me from yeah. the situation. Just tell me you can't go. You're not allowed here because these people are uncomfortable. But very rarely is it the case that a priesthood leader then says, goes to the people who are uncomfortable and says, find a way to get comfortable. She's a saint. She has a testimony. She also has a right to be here in church and commune with the saints. We have in the New Testament, as we're studying this year, you know, Jesus' disciples go to him and say, hey, why are you hanging out with the publicans and the prostitutes and these deplorable people? Why are you with them? You, They're not good people. We don't like them. And what I'm finding is I'm the deplorable today. Mm-hmm. I think, you I'm know, so sorry. You might, yeah, people would be saying today, you know, perhaps, Jesus, why are you hanging out with the LGBT people? They're sinners. Look, they're having sex with people of their same gender. Look at them. They're dressing, you know, as the opposite gender, and they're crazy, and they're sinning, and all that. Why are you hanging out with them? And what would his response be? And I'm not going to speak for Jesus, but, you know, just think about that is how would he react today? of where should people be? I had a bishop who told me, you know, he wanted the ward to be, not be a country club for saints, but a hospital for sinners. But I think so many people want that country club. Yeah, They don't want the sinners with them. And I understand that. I mean, I have seven kids. I want my kids to have great influences. I want them to have those great young women leaders. I want them to have great people to mentor them and give them great examples and good friends and all of that. And the problem is, you know, what I experience is people are like, I don't want you 
around because I don't want your influence on them. Mm. And people want to pull up the tares out of the wheat field. But Jesus responded in the New Testament of, no, leave the tares. I'll take care of them. You don't get to pull the tares out. Because when you pull the tares out, you also pull the wheat out. And I was talking to somebody about this, and I'm like, yeah, it's really happening today. Of You get church members who are like, I don't want those LGBT people in my ward. I don't agree with it. I don't condone it. I, I don't like their influence. And they pull them out. But the problem is, is when you do that, you also pull up wheat, and we lose families who are attached to those LGBT kids or parents or whoever or their neighbors or or people and we lose the wheat as well when we're pulling out those tears. So yeah. there's a time to create Zion and it's not now and Jesus will take care of the cleansing and everything but he told us in 3rd Nephi you know don't kick anybody out. But that's the experience I experience all the time in the church and other transgender members a lot of them. Now I know quite a few in their words, are having great experiences. They're thriving. Yeah. They have church leaders who let them go to Relief Society and participate in all of those ways and are very accommodating and that in with their transition as far as within church policy. Yeah. But there's other church leaders who aren't, who are deciding that they want to impose more restrictions than the policy defines. Yeah. And you know, where my mind goes to like, at the end of the day, again, these are impossible situations if we're striving to please everyone, right? And difficult decisions have to be made. And at the end of the day, I'll respect whatever decision a church leader makes and say, hey, man, like, maybe that's not what I would do. But I know you've wrestled with this. But I just feel like there has to be a wrestle in this where, yeah, maybe there's those the 10 individuals in Relief Society or Elders Quorum, if it's on the other side, who are totally against Catherine attending Relief Society, then at least have the conversation with those people and say, okay, what do we do? Do we do we cast her out? Do we say she can't come here? At some point, somebody's going to be offended and leave. And so how can we at least lean into this and see if we can make this work? Because it's just, we're not all going to agree on this, but the conversations, not just with the transgender individual, but with all that sort of are, are struggling with this, have the conversation as a leader and I think that's going to get us to at least a place that we can move forward with and in and, and good well, conscience and with the spirit. It might be a similar situation to like callings. Mm -hmm. You know, as a bishop, you receive inspiration about calling somebody to a position, but then you have to stand up at the podium on Sunday and say, we're calling so-and-so to this position, who sustains it and who doesn't? And, you know, what happens if there's a bunch of people who go, no. I don't sustain that person in that calling for whatever reason. Now, I haven't really ever seen that in a ward, but I hear it happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you deal with that of people sustaining those decisions and callings? I mean, I was told for years that I could have a calling. But then the state president and my bishop sat down with me one time and said, yeah, we've gone over this many times. We've eliminated all the callings you can't have because of gender. But looking at everything else, we can't find a calling that somebody wouldn't object to. Mm. And so because 
they could imagine that there would be somebody or I don't know if it's the same person or a bunch of individuals or whatever, but because people would object to my calling, any calling, I mean, greeter, activities committee, I mean, who choir? No, you don't want me in the choir. But <laughs> um, that, that would bring up a totally different objections. But because there were people who would object to any calling I was given the ward, they decided they couldn't give me anyone. Mm. And that feeling of going, I was always raised that callings came from God. And so that's where they came from. And so why would you object to a calling coming from God? And I was like, why won't my priesthood leaders lean on God and go, what should, you know, what calling can we give her? out of all the ones that are available to her, what would let her be a part of this ward and be contributing in the ward? And it was like, yeah, we're not even going to go there because there'll be people who object. And they wouldn't even take that step. And that, to me, was a hurtful thing is that they wouldn't even take that step to find out if God had a calling for me and uh, because of other people's uh, bigotry. Yeah. And it goes on just the pile of rejection that you're already feeling, right? Just one more thing. Exactly. I mean, more, I mean, that's the weird thing about it is, you know, people talk about, well, this is just a trial in my life and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we do go through a lot of trials. These, These end days are really hard. People lose jobs, people's health, people's relationships. I mean, just on and on and on things of people are going through of the trials of their life. But for most people, they can find sanctuary at church. You've got priesthood leaders who are will talk to you and, and give you a blessing that you have visiting teachers and home teachers to help you and visit you and comfort you and, and help you with things you need. There, there's an infrastructure in place in the church of helping people as they go through trials. My case is the trials are coming from the church and the people. I don't have visiting teachers. I don't have home teachers. I don't have a calling. I don't have a Relief Society presidency or even an Elders Quorum presidency that cares about me. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, a bishopric who doesn't is completely uninvolved too in this whole experience. And so when you're, I have none of that support system to help me in this trial because the trial is in a way with the church. And so it that's, makes it really hard in my life. Well, they say, Catherine, once a bishop, always a bishop. And I was ordained a bishop, and so I will be your bishop. <laughs> oh, well, great. Thank so you. So you have a bishop that cares. And, and really, I mean that sincerely of like, I am willing to sit down and, and, and read your book. I'm willing to have this conversation. I know I don't make the, all the best affirming decisions or perspectives, or but hey, you know, I'm willing to, to sit with you in this and, and, and listen and, and hear it out. Well, in fairness, I'm a horrible, difficult person, so I really can't blame any of them. <laughs> now, I want to ask, because obviously the human brain hates cognitive dissonance. And so we want to categorize cognitive dissonance until it goes away. And it's like, okay, we have cognitive harmony, right? Like, And with this, it's easy for me, uh, for someone who, you know, I don't, I can go weeks and months without thinking about the transgender issues or whatever it is. And, and so for me, it's easy to sort of 
put a label on all this of, of it's a mental health concern. It's a mental illness or something's happening. And and you sort of talked about that. Yeah, sometimes somebody is struggling with some level of mental illness and they'll sort of categorize it as, oh, this is a transgender thing. I need to, you know, move that direction of transitioning to, to address this. I mean, is it because I think the stigma of mental health continues to decrease, at least I hope so, you know, with depression, anxiety or, you know, OCD, that more people are willing to say, yeah, I'm OCD. I'm okay with that. And I, I have to make adjustments in life and whatever. Is it fair to just say, you know, transgender is just a, a mental illness concern that an individual struggles with and in the afterlife and in the restoration of all things, it'll be worked out. What comes to mind when you hear that kind of categorizing? Uh, well, yeah, I've heard that a lot. And I would say in, in many cases, it's probably true. I talk a bit about this in my book of my reasoning on reasons for why transgender happens. And the fact of the matter is that this is a fallen world mm -hmm. and our bodies are not perfect. And any parent who's expecting a child is praying their brains out every day that their child is born with 10 toes, 10 fingers, and, you know, normal. Because as a parent, you hear all the stories of all the things that can go wrong. And you're just hoping for a healthy baby in this. Because there are thousands of things that can go wrong. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that there are 26,000 genes in our DNA. And things go wrong with them all the time. Mm -hmm. And they affect how the body develops of how what genitals are created in response to uh, hormones hormones play a huge part in our development in utero of how our brains are masculated and defeminized and how all sorts of things there's processes not only in the body forming but also in the brain forming through genetics and interaction with hormones, that there are things with the environment that can have an effect. There's epigenetics, that you can have the right genes, but through epigenetics, the gene can be changed. And so it's a very, very complicated process. And the more I learn about it, the fact that males are born at all is a miracle. <laughs> because wow. the default is for humans to develop as female. There's no intervention in, in development. Babies will all develop as female. Yeah. And so even if they have XY chromosomes. And so it's a very complicated process that we do not understand everything about. We only know what 4,000 of the 26,000 genes do. Yeah. And we are learning more. We only fully sequenced the genome about three, four years ago. So think about that. We didn't even know what all the genes were until about three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. And we only know what about 4,000 of the 26,000 do. And so there are so many stories, and I talk about some of them in my book, of things happening uh, in development. And the question in, in this in this world is what does that mean spiritually with our heavenly father of what are we mm -hmm. our genders are eternal but how does that relate to our body and i'll give a real world example here 
of in in one of my chapters i talk about this trans boy that i met uh, a couple of years ago and had a really special experience with um and they they were transgender they were assigned female at birth because they had a vagina no penis at all and they were identified as a girl and growing up um they uh came through puberty to identify as a boy. And they were telling their parents they were a boy. And the parents understood and realized that their child really was a boy, even though they were assigned female at birth. Um, so when I met them a, a couple of years ago, they were about 13 years old and they were being treated horribly in, in their ward. The bishop wasn't going along with it, wasn't being helpful. They were being dead, um, they were being misgendered. There were always problems about what whether they could go to young women's camp, even though they were fe signed female at birth, they didn't even want this boy to go to young women's. Hmm. And they were they were having all sorts of difficult problems in the ward. And they were being bullied in school and um, and having a hard time. And I met with them a couple of years ago and had a really great experience. And because they were worried about getting a patriarchal blessing, you want to talk from a church leader thing. You probably don't think about that, but when you're transgender and you're faced with getting a patriarchal blessing, you are petrified. What pronouns the patriarch is going to use? Mm -hmm. What are they going to say about you? But anyway, I talked with them about that because I'd gone through that experience. Well, they, with the Utah legislative actions earlier this year of, of anti-transgender legislation, this boy attempted suicide <laughs> a few months, a couple months ago. And um, for reasons I don't totally understand, the mother... Um, did genetic testing. And she got the results a few weeks ago and told me about them. And here's the thing is that as you're listening to this, you're going, okay, this girl just need is mentally ill thinking she's a boy. She just needs to come and get some therapy and just really identify with her female body. She just needs to give up on this thing of being a boy and realize that and you know and not do anything permanent nothing ir irreversible don't do any of those things and i understand that but let me tell you the facts here the genetic test came back and showed that this child had xy chromosomes hmm. Which are male chromosomes, right? <laughs> right, right. Having the Y is supposed to be That's male. Right. <laughs> so this trans boy actually has a Y chromosome, but no penis. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that there were a deletion of genes on the X chromosome, which caused the testosterone to have no effect. Hmm. That the receptors for testosterone are turned off. And so in utero, the testosterone came and it did nothing. And so 
this child with XY chromosomes, which you would think would supposed to be developed into a boy, didn't and end up with a vagina Mm -hmm. and a girl. And but you're stuck there with like, okay, why do they think they're a boy? Well, you can say now and go, oh, well, of course they're a boy because they have a Y chromosome, just like Kurt does, I assume. Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Do you actually know whether? I guess I don't. don't, But man, there's a whole lot of uh, testosterone coming out of me. So anyway, we'll assume that you do. But it's like, yeah, of course they feel like a boy and are a boy because they have the Y chromosome, but they don't have a penis. Mm -hmm. What do you do now as a church leader? Right. You go. Oh, I have this. Well, genetic testing says they're X Y and a boy, but they don't have a penis. They have a vagina. Do I send them on scout camp? Right. Yeah, that becomes very complicated. That it's yeah. very complicated. But what my point of this is that not saying that every transgender person has these genetic issues, but the fact is, is that here you had a child who knew what their gender is from a very young age, but we don't know why. We haven't done the genetic testing. We ha- we're not able to peer into the brain to know what hormones did and the sexualization of the brain and all of that uh, for whatever these reasons are. You can be, you know, look at people and go, I can look at Kurt and assume that you have XY chromosomes and that you had testosterone and all of that. But in reality, you might not. You might not actually have a Y chromosome. There's all sorts of things that can happen in a spectrum of things. And now I'm not saying gender is a spectrum. And I'm not saying every transgender person has genetic issues, but a lot do. And there's a lot of intersex conditions. There's a lot of things going on that we don't really understand. But as a church, what we do understand is a spirit that really what determines whether you feel like a man and I feel like a woman, in my opinion, is what eternal spirit do we each have, regardless of the body? I mean, if God can put a spirit into a body that is mentally handicapped, that has Down syndrome or a host of issues, there's thousands of issues, into bodies that are blind, into bodies that are deaf, into bodies that are missing limbs, of all of these physical impairments that perfectly healthy spirits can be born into why can't they also be born into bodies that have gender development issues it's just another aspect of this terrestrial world and these bodies and how we are being i hate to say the word tested but we all get these bodies and some are better than others and we all have to cope with them in this world with having these perfect spirits and so My view is I'm here with a female spirit having this somewhat male experience. Why? I don't know. I don't have that answer. But I've gotten plenty of answers that I am female. And so why would God give me this, what appears to me, a male body? I don't know. He's not explaining it. And it'll be one of my first questions on the other side. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'll be right there ready to hear the the answer for sure. Yeah, you know, I expect to get to the other side and and find I have the body that I've wanted, you know, pick your supermodel. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I'll see my spirit. And I'll just go, wow, I had this male, that male body, but now I can have my real body. Yeah, you know, 
And a lot of you out there are probably going, no, that's not what you're going to happen. You're going to get on the other side and find that you have this male spirit. And why did you do all those things? And yeah, I pretty sure that's not going to happen. But if it does, you know, yeah. I'll be surprised. And but we'll roll with it and go. I did the best I could of staying on the covenant path, keeping my covenants. I had my family. I got married. I've sustained my leaders in the church. I've tried to do everything right that I possibly can in this world that my heavenly father wants me to do. Yeah. It's just like everybody else. I mean, just like you and everybody else who has all of these other issues, people who are blind, people who are deaf, people uh, who are black or Asian or whatever race, I mean, or gender. I mean, everybody's got their things in life and this just happens to be mine. And I'm trying to live my best life as a daughter of God. Yeah. And I appreciate all that because what I gather from it is this, again, our brains want to reconcile this and have a clear answer. And we have a strong tradition of truth and doctrine, and this is eternally true, and that's eternally true and whatnot. But to just sort of take a deep breath in it all and say, you know what, I think this, there's a lot more complexity in all that's going on here. You know, I appreciate that example you shared that, oh yeah, now that we learned a little bit more, look closer. And again, not that every transgender situation is going to come down to a, what did you call a it? A deletion of genes. Yeah, exactly. But just to realize, okay, this is complex. We're probably not going to understand everything going on, at least maybe not in this life and to move forward. And and so this may be dovetails well into this concept of doctrine and what our prophets and apostles have said, family proclamation, that, you know, the the church's stance talks about, you know, eternal gender, and that gender is talking about biological sex, right? And so what, what you were assigned, as President Oaks has said, is what yeah. you were assigned at birth. Right. And so, I mean, it's how do you reconcile that? Or how do you step into that that complexity there? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to get that appointment uh, with the state president and high council, but uh-huh. transgender people are pretty okay with the concept of our gender is eternal. And we would agree with that. The question is, is the gender I think I'm eternally the same as what you think it is? And the church says it aligns with what you were assigned at birth. Okay, as a policy of the church, of the proclamation, yeah, it's true. For about 99.997% of people, mm. of I, I think my belief is that a lot of the things like policies in the church handbook and even the proclamation are great in the general broad sense of this is what is true, is that Kurt Frankum was assigned male at birth and has a male, eternal male spirit. Mm-hmm. I think everybody would agree with that including you yes, and, and, and your wife. And that's great. And that's doctrine and policy. But the problem is, is the cases where that's not true, is that there's a minority of things. I mean, there's a lot of things like in the proclamation about, you know, the man's role is to be the provider and the protector, and the wife is to be the nourisher and to raise the children. And we have this sort of 1950s idea of, of gender roles of men and women. Now, in a ward as a bishop, you might have some families where the woman works or the man stays home or they both work or maybe none of them work. I don't know. But you get all those different things. Does it 
but it doesn't change the proclamation. The proclamation to me speaks to an ideal, Mm. to the general broad case of this is how things should be. And this is what's best. But you always are dealing with the fringe stuff on occasion of, of you have things that don't fit into that. Like I'm talking about this trans boy of you try and pigeonhole him into the church doctrine and policy and saying, you're a girl. You need to be a girl. Your spirit is eternally a girl. Oh, you have this Y chromosome and gene deletion. So what did God intend there? Mm-hmm. Did God intend that to have a boy spirit in this boy body, but something went wrong and they became a girl. So they, you know, they have a boy spirit with this boy body. Or is there really a female spirit in this female appearing body that could have become male, but didn't. And so they're really a girl having supposed to be having the female experience, but because of issues, they feel like a boy. I mean, you know, playing, 10 dimensional chess with God of what did he intend in these situations. And the church has always recognized intersex conditions. And so I've met several individuals who were born intersex in that they had ambiguous genitalia of meaning that their genitals of a penis or vagina was not very clear of whether they were male or female, or maybe they had both. But there was an outward appearance that there was a problem. And as they grow up, they didn't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. The doctors looked at the ambiguous genitalia and went, you're male or you're female. And But as the person grew up, it was wrong. They didn't identify with that assigned gender that they received. And they are able to send a petition to the first presidency's office and say, here's my proof that I was born intersex. This is my intersex condition. And I do not identify as the gender I was assigned at birth. And the first presidency takes up that petition. They do what they do. And they either grant the petition or they deny it. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I've talked to, it's been granted. I have heard that they of somebody who, who their petition was denied. Well, I don't know the reasons. Yeah. It's the first presidency. I don't know what policies they have. I don't. And if anybody's going to get inspiration and revelation from God, it's going to be them. Right. So, I mean, it's totally in their hands and it's their thing. And and I won't even discount the fact that maybe somebody really does have a girl spirit and a boy body and petitions the first presidency and the president and they go to the God and God says, no, leave them, leave them male for now. Mm hmm. We're not going to change their gender marker. They need to go through the rest of life having that male gender marker because reasons, whatever they are, God in his perfect plan for this individual does not want their gender marker changed. Yeah. But maybe it could be, but he doesn't want it. It's again, it's that 10 dimensional chess of you don't know. And so without revelation and inspiration to know, but even then you don't, as I said, in my book with president Oaks, it's like, God doesn't always share the reasons behind everything he tells you. So, but by the sheer fact that the first presidency does change gender markers, it does mean that even when President Oak says you have an eternal spirit and it's against what you were assigned at birth, the church has policy that they will change your gender different from what you were assigned at birth. So it does mean that there are exceptions, Hmm. but 
in a general sense, what the church's doctrine and policy is, is true. But there are a certain number of exceptions. How many? I don't know. Yeah. Am I an exception? I don't know. Yeah. And so I can take that as some comfort of going, you know, it's mostly true. It may not be true in my case. Yeah. And just hearing you articulate that just helps me get a better understanding. Again, not that I agree with every last word that Catherine just said, but it's like, okay, I can see, I can see how you, you know, reconcile all that and are able to say, yeah, and I'm still a believer. And this, you know, there's probably more that we need to understand. I think in, but by the time I get to the other side of mortality and if, you know, God comes to me and says, no, Kurt, actually, Catherine really did have a spirit of a, of a woman. And I'd be like, oh, great. Well, I just hope that I treated her well, you know, in mortality and that I was a good person and reached out and was Christ-like to her. And I'm sure it, maybe you'll get other side and say, no, Catherine, actually, you were always a male spirit. And he's like, okay, well, where do we go from here? You know, like, I'm they're be like, darn, I'm, I'm disappointed here. I, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting first few seconds after <laughs> I get through the other side. It's going to be yeah, probably another gender dysphoria thing of yeah, like, like the the other way, right? <laughs> yeah, going the other way of going. Oh, um, what is the real situation here? Yeah, it's going to be entertaining. I mean, that's yeah. one of the fun things of being transgender is just the sheer entertainment value of it in your life. <laughs> I'm if, glad you you frame it that way. I don't know. Is that? Um, I mean, as if living in the end times wasn't entertaining enough, uh -huh. be transgender in the end times. I yeah. mean, your, your life is never boring. Yeah. So I feel like I, I try to use sort of your own personal timeline and life experience as sort of the structure of this interview, but I've totally failed on that. But nonetheless, I, I, there's one point I want to get to as far as some things you've done re in the last few years of attending different wards and whatnot, but I want to fill in the gap. Uh, and obviously they should go read your book if they want the full story, right? Yes, uh, please go read my book. Please, all of you. <laughs> and it's available on Amazon, right? It's on Kindle. That's how I read it. It's, so it's available. But so you don't go on a mission. You do get married and your wife was somewhat familiar with what you were experiencing, just going through dating and right. Well, yeah. Mine is not the usual case where we got married and then 15, 20 years into the marriage, I said, hey, guess what? No, I came out to her six months after we started dating and she dumped me. Hmm. And her father said to her, sometimes girl spirits end up in boy bodies and you don't want to marry, let alone date anybody like that. Hmm. So, but for whatever reasons, maybe she can write a book. Um <laughs> Yeah. And She's on next week, Catherine, just so you know. Oh, oh, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have some questions. Yeah, I, um, bet. I bet. But she fell in love with me and in uh, six months, and we dated for six years. Wow. Well, if you call it dating. But yeah, we were together exclusive for six years before she asked me to marry her. Okay. And you're married in the temple? Yeah, so Salt Lake Temple. Had six kids, right? Seven. Seven, okay. Nice. I have six daughters. And and during that time, I mean, you were publicly, you were presenting male. Is that fair to say? Male-ish. Male-ish, okay. Well, all that time dating, I had long hair, and I grew up my fingernails, and I, for a large part of it, I was wearing exclusively female clothes. Primarily Even at home, a, right? Or... No, going oh, okay. to work. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, even underwear. Yeah, I was going to work. It was, 
it was fairly androgynous, but yeah, my sweaters had shoulder pads and it was the eighties and (laughs) I didn't wear jewelry or makeup, but my shoes were women's loafers or, and my pants, all my clothes were from the women's side of the aisle. And generally those surrounding you just sort of thought you had an interesting uh, style for a male. Right. But when I got home from work, I had clothes at her apartment and I would change and we would go out and sometimes we'd go out to dinner or a movie or to the local blockbuster. Some of you might have to Google that. (laughs) And we went shopping for clothes and stuff. And so she, I'm 6'1", so I have a long torso. So she made some dresses for me Mm -hmm. to better fit. That was just life that you, that was life for a while and it was just, it didn't, wasn't really the topic of discussion a lot. It's just sort of how life was, right? She, it's how life was. I would say she didn't really understand it, mm-hmm. but she was supportive of it. And uh-huh. so that went on for years. And you were classified like as a worthy priesthood holder with yeah. callings, many times priesthood callings. Well, nothing more than secretary. I, I okay. explain this in my book. I've uh-huh. never been nothing more than a secretary or a teacher. Nobody was crazy enough okay. to actually put the, me into leadership. You were the executive secretary, right? Yeah, I was okay. the word executive secretary. No, we, we need to have a whole episode on your approach to <laughs> Anyways, but... I was... Uh, well, let me just say, I listened to your podcast a while ago about being an Elder Squirm secretary. Uh-huh. And I was an Elder Squirm secretary twice. And I also did a number of years as an Elder Squirm teacher. Uh-huh. But I... The only good thing about me being secretary were my legs. <laughs> I, I, that's, a, that's a solid Catherine joke. Only Catherine uh, would make that joke, and that's why we love you. I did not take <laughs> notes of meetings. I did not make phone calls and appointments. I hated calling people and setting up appointments because they would always not show up. What I was really good at was at creating reports. And I, as a ward executive secretary, I had the best report in the entire stake. (laughs) I mean, this was PowerPoint perfect of reporting for my bishop to the stake president. They were, the stake president was in awe. That I did good. The rest of it, I was not good at. Yeah. So anyway. So you raised the the kids and and then it got to a point where you wanted to present more as a female, right? And then that sort of started beginning of the end well a few years after we got married my wife came to me and told me that she didn't want the girls growing up thinking they had two mothers Hmm. and so i had to go into the closet so i spent about 10 years with my wife and girlfriend wearing being expressing myself as female Mm -hmm. and so it was something that was not discussed before we got married about what about kids? What do we do when we have kids? Uh, what would this look like? It was never a discussion. It was a really important discussion that probably we should have had, but we didn't. And so this was a surprise to me into our marriage that it's backwards. Instead of me coming out and saying, hey, I'm transgender and a woman, it was, hey, you've got to put that woman part into the closet mm. and present male. And so it was a backwards experience for me. And so I went into the closet for about 15 years and I couldn't take it anymore. I would sit in church and look at the men on the stand and go, I don't want to be like them. Hmm. That's not me. I mean, and I don't identify with that. 
And so I, about 10 years ago, came to my wife and said, I can't be in the closet anymore. It's killing me and I need to retransition. Yeah. And then that's when things went to worse. Yeah. And since then that that marriage has ended, right? And you're now single. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And some people may have seen you or you've been on the news and whatnot in regards to what you do at General Conference, right? Maybe explain that. Oh, well, there's a whole chapter in the book about this. But yeah, yeah, about five years ago, I joined Peter Moseman in going to General Conference and having a sign that says, hug a transgender Latter-day Saint. Yeah, and you just stand out there right outside the conference center, right? And take some hugs. Mm-hmm. Stand outside the conference center there on the southeast corner where all the church leaders go in and out and give hugs. And I've been doing that for five years. And the first time I did it, I just had the most amazing miracle happen. And Anyway, we won't discuss it here, but yeah, it was really affirming to me of that God would find me there at conference and it changed my life. Yeah. And that's what another point of your book that I really appreciate. And it's sort of the overarching theme of that, just how God has shown up for you in your story, in your journey. And that's just this feeling of grace that came from it. I just really appreciated that. And so, yeah, I just did that in April. Peter and the rest of them have stopped going to give hugs. So it's just me. We need another hug team, folks. We need, I know. I've tried to recruit people, but nobody wants to come to it. But this last <laughs> April, I was there and I handed out 200 copies of my book. Oh, awesome. And Emily Bell Freeman came out of the session where she was announced to be the new young women's leader. Uh And she saw me and she came over and said, hi. And I congratulated her on her new calling. And she congratulated me on my book. And she took a copy of my book. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, various 70s general authorities, mission presidents, temple presidents, uh, people from presidencies and boards and stuff. A lot of them took my book and I'm just dying to hear from any of them. Yeah. I know they're all slow readers and they're and they're very busy. <laughs> they probably have people to read it for them. But <laughs> no, I don't know what your plan is with that sign someday, but to me it's an icon. So don't ever I throw know. it away. All right. <laughs> I was hinting to people that it might be my last time. And it really might be. And I had all these people going, no, you can't. Hugging you each time is a thing now. Yeah. And we look forward to So many of these church leaders will tell me, see you next time. We're glad you're here. And they love to hear my voice welcoming them to conference and that it's so it's been a really great experience. That's cool. That's awesome. Now, and this, I mentioned bringing this up earlier, but we've talked about President Oaks a little bit. And oftentimes, you know, he, he's a, you know, very straight talker. He's uh, covered some difficult topics and he gets sometimes a lot of hate online because he's that guy. But you mentioned in the book that he's actually one of your your favorite apostles. Yes, he um, he has been for a very long time. I really look forward to the Oaks talks in conference. And I, yeah, he the LGBT pop community is not a huge fan of his, but I really love President Oaks and his shoot straighting style, and he doesn't mess around and. I would love to have lunch with him sometime. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm not sure how that would go. But 
yeah, I look forward to his talks. And I quote for him extensively in my book because he said a lot of really great things. And I'm the person in the LGBT community who, when Oak says something, they're all setting their hair on fire. And I'm like going, what did he say wrong? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, he's just telling what the church policy and doctrine is. You know, it's, you know, as I've said earlier, as we talked about these things about how I deal with church doctrine and policy, it's like, yeah, I deal with it. I have a way of dealing with it in my life. So, you know, he says things and I actually agree a lot with what he says. I mean, one of the interesting things he said several years ago, and I was hugging and I was sitting in the tabernacle was, oh, no, I, I, it was the women's session. And I was sitting in the women's session. And he, when he was talking about, we can't be associated with groups who would take us off the covenant path. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. And that's one of the challenges of being an LGBT saint is that there are LGBT LDS organizations out there to support you and that. But so many of them are so affirming and go down that road that they become anti-church. Hmm. And they believe things and they take you down a road. As I talk about my book about Mormon Protestantism and things, and I see people leave the covenant path and leave the church and which is you know why i've been affiliated with north star for the last over eight years mm -hmm. and i really like the organization and so yeah. it, it's a really great church affirming organization but also supportive of lgbt people and so that's something i want in my life is things that keep me on the covenant path and aren't um, murmuring against church leaders. I have no tolerance for that of when I'm in a group and they start murmuring against church leaders, I'm out. Yeah. And because I don't want that poisoning me. Yeah. So you said earlier, just the power that affirming an individual can have on, you know, especially for a transgender individual, but can someone be too affirming? I mean, is there sort of a balance there? Well, I think that's where people would get into can what is something if where does affirming become condoning? Yeah. And in my book I I talk Elder Holland spoke about this. You don't hear about it because he was speaking at BYU and he said some other things which just set the whole world on fire mm -hmm. with the LGBT audience but which I don't agree with of how they respond to it. I understand what he was saying. Right. Right. <laughs> Because I always start from the point of view that there are prophets, seers, and revelators. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with what Elder Holland said, but there was this neat little nugget in there where he said something to the effect of, we should be loving and affirming to the point that they think we're condoning. And we need to be orthodox to the point that they don't feel that we hate them. And... That really resonated with me of people are afraid and it gets back to where we started at the beginning of people are afraid how to deal with me because they're afraid of condoning. You don't condone sin. Okay, what sin am I committing here? Hmm. I mean, okay, somehow my outfits are really horrible, but <laughs> uh, and I repent, but you know, what is condoning? 
of a transgender person. I don't want to condone that sin. Well, what's the sin? According to church policy, I can socially transition and I can take the sacrament. I can go to church. I can talk. I can bear my testimony. I can hold a calling. And as a former bishop, you know that that's well above the place of disfellowshipment. Right. That's way above being or being on probation. Mm-hmm. Are there some restrictions? Yeah, I can't go to the temple, but I'm still temple worthy. I keep my covenants and everything. I wear my garments every day, day and night. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm keeping my covenant. So it's, what is the sin? Well, it's a little vagueish there, but I like to attribute it to, I equate it to um, in our church history that there was a period of time at the very beginning when blacks held the priesthood and could go to the temple. And then there was a period of time where it was decided, no, blacks can't go to the temple and can't hold the priesthood. And then a very long time later, it was decided, okay, blacks can go to the priesthood, uh, can hold the priesthood and go to the temple. And it's not that blacks were sinning. There was, you know, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) That's right. But, uh, But, you know, there were reasons and things happened, but that was the policy. And so I feel right now like, okay, I'm temple worthy. I feel like I should be able to go to the temple, but I can't because of church policy. Now we could argue doctrine or, and whatever and of what that I'm committing some sin and being transgender and pretending to be female and all of that. And it's like, okay, but I don't feel any condemnation from God or a need to repent. And I don't know what I would re- repent of And so I feel all that normalness. So it's like, what is my sin? And we don't, that you are condoning. And so people are in this thing of like, well, I don't want to condone it by using your preferred pronouns or using your name. That's not truth. We believe in truth and that's not truth. You're not really female. So I don't want to use your pronouns because that would be condoning or accepting what you're doing or I ran into this with my family. They will not buy me girl gifts. Hmm. If I have a birthday or Christmas or whatever, I don't get jewelry. I don't get clothes or makeup or any, you know, anything girl related. I don't get because they don't want to condone what I'm doing. And so we don't want to condone sin, but what does that mean of what would be condoning with a transgender person? And The church really hasn't spoken to that, per se. But Elder Holland in this talk says we should affirm up to the point of condoning and so that they feel like we're condoning when we're really not. And it's like, I would love that. I would love if people were kind and loving to me that I really felt like they totally accepted and affirmed me, but they didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have that line with my gay friends. The church has a policy of no gay marriage or same-sex relationships and that. And I have a lot of friends who are in same-sex relationships or even married. And it's like, I can go out to dinner with them. I can go to their wedding. I've gone to the reception. Do I approve of same-sex marriage? No, that's not the policy of the church. And that's Mm -hmm. what God is not accepting. But, you know, we all have those people in our lives. We have people who break the word of wisdom. We have people in our lives who break chastity laws. We People who don't pay their tithing. 
we have people who are sinners in our lives all the time. In fact, you know, we're all sinners at some level. And what are we condoning? Where are the lines of where we are condoning with other people of, okay, I might not buy cigarettes for somebody who's a smoker. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, if they needed me to get them some cigarettes or something, would I not do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that condoning them doing it? It's just, wait, what does it really mean to condone various things of where does charity and love end and it becomes bad because we are condoning that and approving it? I can say, I don't approve of you smoking, but if you need a pack of cigarettes because you're having a fit, maybe I can buy you one, you know, mm -hmm. because it's being helpful and charitable or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm not stating that out there as an absolute or something, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, no, I see what but you're just, saying. Yeah. but just as at the concept there of where does love and charity end? how far does love and charity go with people that we view as sinners before it becomes condoning. And the church has done a very good job of preaching what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy and what activities can you do on a Sunday that are approved and which are unapproved, as it were. Don't visit stores. Don't go shopping on Sunday. Do family things. Visit the poor. Visit yeah. family. Visit the sick and rest. A lot of people love that because they take naps. But And we know the things you know, you're supposed to not do that would be seen as not keeping it holy. But we don't really get the examples of what does it mean to condone somebody who's gay? What does it mean to condone somebody who's transgender? Yeah. Where do we draw those lines and are they the same for everybody? And so I find in my life that people are afraid of being, well, I actually give a really great example in my book of somebody close to me who was like, I can't do any of this for you because that would be condoning. And I do not want to show up at the judgment bar and be held accountable that I condoned your behavior of being transgender and being a woman. And so they don't do anything because they're afraid of that. And I think there's a part with a lot of saints of like, I don't want to be seen as condoning sin. We're not supposed to. But where is that line, as Elder Holland said? But on the flip side of what Elder Holland said was, you know, be orthodox up to the point where you're not hurting and they still think you love them. And what I find a lot is that I find people in life who are more than willing to cross that line. They will preach doctrine to me. They will preach the proclamation on the, of the family to me and scriptures and all of that and tell me what I'm doing in my life is wrong and be hurtful, they're more than willing to cross that line of preaching truth to me because that's how they show love. That's the right way to show love to me is to preach this truth to me mm. on that. So they'll cross that, re easily cross that line. But the other line of showing love and compassion to the point of, I think they're condoning, they won't go near it. Yeah. And Elder Holland in another talk talked about how that whole condoning thing is becoming troublesome because so many people are LGBT today that it's like, you've got friends who are gay or trans. How do you interact and have a friendship with them that's not condoning? And he doesn't say, again, doesn't explain it. I would it'd be really nice sometime for them to, you know, 
maybe give a little bit more clarification on that <laughs> of some examples, because I think a lot of people won't go to that gay marriage because they don't want to be seen as condoning the gay marriage. Yes. But lots of saints do. Lots of people don't want to do things with transgender people because they don't want to seem condoning. But what is and what isn't, it'd be great. Well, Catherine, this has uh, been a fascinating discussion. And uh, yeah, but so what, if people do want to check out the book, uh, where would you send them? Go to Amazon because I haven't gotten it into Desert Book yet. <laughs> nice. But okay. yeah, I talk in there about my experiences of being called to go to 40 different wards in three years. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting thing God wanted me to do. I talk in there about going to BYU's Women's Conference and going to Time Out for Women and my experiences there of God in my life. I talk about my new life as a single female in the church. Yeah, there's a lot of stories there. Yeah, that's posed some interesting dilemmas for church leaders as well, which we haven't gotten to talk to. But yeah. how do you deal with a transgender woman who's going to the firesides and activities and dances in a church uh, dating situation and what they've decided to do with me in that yeah. has also been in enlightening. And so as I try and date within the church of finding someone who will love me and marry me and that. So what I've found is, you know, getting back to the opening question about what to do with us. And that is of people don't think that I have a testimony that I'm just a sinner that I've given my life over to Satan and he's running rampant and I'm the prodigal daughter who's sowing her oats and living in the with the pigs and stuff and waiting for me to get over this and come home. And how could I ever have Jesus in my life? How could I ever have the spirit in my life? And I think the whole point of the book is of when God told me to write it a year ago is to get out that message that, that that's not what's happening of what you think is happening with transgender people is not what's happening of we do have spiritual experiences we do have god in our life and i can tell you that god has been more in my life and i have had more spiritual experiences and more powerful spiritual experiences in my last four years of being banned from going to the temple than i ever had in 40 years being male and going to the temple my testimony has grown exponentially. I am more sure today of the existence of my Savior than ever and the truthfulness of the church. And I have God in my life every day. And for people to think that I'm a deplorable and that I don't belong in church and that I need to repent and come to, to get the Spirit back in my life, and that is not what's going on. That's your judgment of what you think about transgender people. And read my book and find out what really is happening, at least in my life. And maybe you realize that it's happening in a lot more people's lives. And, you know, that we do, we do have a testimony and we do know who we are. We do know where we fit into the plan 
and we are staying on the covenant path. There is a place for us in the church, and if you'll only let us. And that concludes my interview with Catherine Herman. We'll put the link to the book in the show notes. But thank you, Catherine, for allowing me to uh, just ask some questions, and I hope I handled it well. But there you have it. I'd love to hear from you, Leading Saints audience, what you thought of uh, this conversation, what we miss, what questions would you ask. And I encourage you to go reach out to a transgender individual in your life, in your world, in your community, and uh, sit down and have a conversation. And really, as a church leader, these individuals deserve simply conversation and you may walk out disagreeing as much as you walked in disagreeing but i believe there will be a relationship that begins to foster there one that we can find that common ground and understanding that can lead to more people in our pews which leads to more people coming unto christ so again i refer to you to the two resources one the lgbt saints virtual library which you can access and watch all the sessions at no cost at leadingsaints.org slash 14. And then join me at the North Star Conference. It's happening in June. We'll link to the details of that and how to register. And there's a free leadership track as well that is phenomenal. We'll put that in the show notes and uh, we'll see you there. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.